Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Christmas Eve, Sept uh, not September, uh, December the 24th, 2021, for those of you who need a date for Christmas Eve, the day before Christmas. Normally in media, as um, the Wall Street Journal reports, uh, we do Christmas love stories on uh, Christmas Eve. They have a piece today about the power and popularity of Christmas love stories, uh, quoting from the, the journal. Um, these popular stories usually follow a simple formula in the days leading up to Christmas, a successful but overworked woman from the big city finds herself stuck in a quaint small town, often the one where she grew up. There she rediscovers the spirit of the season through interactions with quirky and kindly townsfolk and falls in love with her soulmate. Well, the good news is we're not doing that today. Um, we're actually doing the opposite. Um, we are talking about um, a, a and 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 I think the spirit of a, a an alternative Christmas, perhaps a more American Christmas, was captured by the obituary of Renee Mandel Corrin, uh, a plus size Jewish lady redneck who died in El Paso on Saturday. Um, this obituary is become viral online. The bawdy, fertile, red-headed matriarch has kicked it, uh, an obituary written by her son. Um, we're doing something different on the show today. We're talking about an appropriately un-Christmas story, uh, very different, I think, from the traditional Christmas Eve narrative. Um, we're talking about a new book, The Emphatically Queer Career of Artists Perkins Hanley and his bohemian friends. Um, and this is written by my guest today, Sarah Burns, who's joining us from Seattle, Washington. Sarah, uh, the story of Perkins Hanley is not a Christmas story, at least in the traditional American narrative, is it? No, not really. Um, if anything was Christmassy about his life, it was pretty perverse. Uh, and uh, as the journal said, uh, in, in the traditional American narrative, um, uh, a woman goes from a small town to, um, or goes, uh, begins in a small town, goes somewhere, falls in love, re reveals herself. Uh, the story of Perkins Hanley is quite different. He began in a small town in America, a place I'd never heard of. Um, I'm sure most of us have never heard of. Ogallala, uh, a place in Nebraska, went to Los Angeles, but his life wasn't a Christmas story, was it? No, not at all. Um, not, you know, wholesome, not full of, well, it was full of good cheer, actually, uh, but not exactly of the Christmas kind. Yeah, that's why I chose to have you, Sarah, on the show. <laughs> uh, he isn't, of course, like Rene Mandel Corrin, who wasn't an artist, but there's something spirited and um, 
unusual about this man, Perkins Hanley. Uh, Hanley. Tell me a little bit about him. What, what, why were you, in your, you're a distinguished art historian. Most, most of our viewers and listeners won't be familiar with this man. And you acknowledge in your intro that you didn't know much about him. What attracted you about Perkins Hanley that resulted in you writing a, this book about him? Well, if it's okay, I need to back up to how I actually stumbled upon him, which was kind of a Please, long, absolutely, yeah. long, you know, strange trip, you might say. Um, so I got interested in Victorian houses, you know, especially the Gothic-y ones with all the pinnacles and mansard roof and, you know, nooks and crannies and, you know, especially the ones that loom over you, like the house in Psycho. And um, then I began to think about how Halloween houses to this very day are almost always Victorian houses, you know, with moonlight and bats. And, um, and they're so ubiquitous that if you look at a Victorian house, you kind of begin to think it's haunted. And so I became very curious about, well, why Victorian house? Um, so these images began to appear in the 1920s and the 1930s. And so the first thing I thought would be productive and interesting would be to find out well, what were people writing about Victorian style, Victorian architecture, the Victorian period. And so I just ransacked all these journals and books and of the period and and discovered that you know, Victorian houses at that time were being written about as abominations. And this was like the modernist decades and everyone wanted to you know, be streamlined and contemporary and clean and bright, wipe away the past. And so the Victorian house was, um, it was almost like the, you know, the sort of detested unconscious of American thinking at that time. And, you know, these Victorian houses, here we have an image for people just watching, uh, of listening of uh, Queen Victoria of England. Did these houses look like Queen Victoria? Kind of. I mean, they were large and bloated and excessively decorated. You know? <laughs> and, um, and so they became the repositories of everything, you know, this generation of Americans wanted to sweep away to make them disappear, um, but they refuse to, of course, and, and they become, you know, emblems of this, the Gilded Age, the age of excess, the age of corruption, you know, the age of the millionaires and tycoons and poor struggling masses and, and you know, complexes. Anyway, so I was collecting all this stuff, and then I came across this little piece of criticism in a magazine called the Art Digest. And it illustrated one of Perkins's, you know, whores, as he called them, with a corset and stockings and a big hat, um, very curvaceous. And the criticism, this article, talked about how his work was as if someone had disgorged the contents of a Victorian attic, you know, all this terrible stuff. And he seemed to revel in it. Um, so he wasn't like the artists who saw the Victorian houses in the Victorian period as pathological and you know disgusting and scary. Um, it seems like he was just reveling, and you know he couldn't put too much in his pictures. Every, 
you couldn't cram them excessively enough. And so there's this kind of exuberance um, of his embrace of the Victorian. So I became curious about, well, who is this guy who's, you know, going against the grain, you might say, the modernist grain or the 1930s, 20s grain. And I began to find, well, I began to collect articles um, and I was first um, became more interested in him when I read an oral history, which was taken in 1980 by a curator uh, at the American, the Smithsonian American Art Museum. And in it, he told these stories about his grandmother who was a caretaker at a cemetery and how she used to take him to cemeteries and how much he loved them. And, and his grandfather built Victorian houses. Um, and he talked about his grandfather's own Victorian house, which uh, had a magnificent outhouse. Uh, Perkins described it as built like a shapely woman. It was all black, a brick, and um, it had you know two seats inside that were lined with red velvet. You know for winter months, and and the Sears Roebuck catalog that you either read or used for hygienic purposes, and. Um, and then he went on to talk about his idol, Sarah Bernhardt, the great French actress, and how you know he met her and had a memorable encounter with her when she was on her last, her farewell tour of the United States. She actually had four farewell tours, and she found it hard to say goodbye. Um, although on this particular tour, she was trying to raise money you know, uh, to help the, the war in France. Anyway, so it was like, wow, cemeteries, Victorian houses, Sarah Bernhardt. Um, and I decided that this would be a trail that would be fascinating to follow. And so that's, that's how I got into Perkins. Originally, I was going to write a book called American Gothics, um, in which I would put Perkins in, in a group of artists who were like-minded in their attitudes toward, you know, the Victorian. I mean, you've done a lot of work in this. You've, you've written a book, Painting the Dark Side, um, Inventing the Modern Artist, uh, Pastoral Inventions. Uh, mm -hmm. So you're, you're familiar with this kind of thing. But what was it? Uh, there's this wonderful bio of Perkins that said, um, I'm reading it from a gallery website that I found. Um, uh, he, he, he's, um, it's a very short bio, but suggests that um, uh, he, he was very influenced by, by, by the Victorians. Um, uh, and he, he, it says he moved to California where he resided until his death in, 18, in 1986. But the book itself is as much about Perkins's life as it is about his art, right, Sarah? I mean, you're, yeah. you're struck not just by Perkins, um, Hanley mm -hmm. and his irreverent art and attitude, but also by his friends, um, his, what well, in the title, his bohemian friends. Yeah. Uh, this seems to be the thing that in some ways drives your book. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, Perkins, in his own right, is certainly an interesting figure. He's quite a unique character. But as I proceeded with the research and began to read more letters and find more archives, um, 
what struck me was how in a weirdly cosmic way he just kept crossing paths with all kinds of famous people or interesting people or weird people um movie people hollywood decorators um renowned raconteurs um and one of my favorites although i didn't write too much about him was william seabrook who introduced america to the zombie and um you know, went to exotic places and tried to you know, sort of act like the natives which also included at one on one occasion eating a human chop uh, in a group of cannibals so we have uh, cannibalism <laughs> Uh, some of the characters that I was struck with um, that, that he knew that are remarkable that sort of uh, speak of a very theatrical past to America. It's almost like an alternative history of America, not just of American art, but of America itself. Paul Swan um, and uh, Alexander King. These were people that he came across that he was close to. Mm -hmm. Tell me about these characters. What's unusual about them? Most people, I think most of our viewers and listeners will be very unfamiliar with them. Well, and that's the thing, you know, um, when I began to assemble this group of characters, you know, I knew that some people knew something about one person, for example, like Rose O'Neill, the Cupid doll lady, and they might know something about the picture of Dorian Gray. But the thing about Perkins's life was he crossed paths with so many diverse and interesting and weird people. He was kind of like Forrest Gump, in a sense. Um, so so Forrest Gump of the of, of a counterculture before it was formalized as the counterculture. Right, exactly. Um, and, and, and it is an American story, and I like the fact that you brought that up because it's, it's not the you know, usual American story at all. Um, it's a tale of survival, and it's a tale of you know, how people lived out of the mainstream and in many ways had joyful experiences or miserable experiences, but in any case, so... And I think it's particularly relevant today um, um, when America seems to be, I mean, it's probably always the case and it sounds a bit of a cliche, but America's really struggling to figure itself out, to remember what it was or what it is or what it should be. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, Perkins Hanley is an extreme model of a, of a kind of American, but it, it, it offers... Um, it offers a, a snapshot of an alternative America that's full of vitality and irreverence that perhaps many Americans and outsiders have forgotten. I, I think that's absolutely true. And that's what was illuminating for me about writing this book. So as far as the characters go, um, it's, you know, when I was trying to pitch the book, I compared it to, well, it's like going to a party in a, in a huge rambling house and you move from room to room and meet weird, interesting people in each one. So I guess Paul's... It'd make a great movie. I, I don't know if you <laughs> sold the movie rights, but uh, any any aspiring filmmaker who wants to tell a wonderfully original, vibrant story should should read this book. Yeah, it's a real picaresque tale, you know, The Wanderings of Perkins. So, so the first, um, well, the second interesting person he met, the first, of course, was Sarah Bernhardt, and that's quite a tale, but uh, Paul Swan, was he was born in what, Crab Orchard, Nebraska. He was all, it's amazing how many people came from Nebraska um, and left and became famous. But- um, Well, that was once America, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, so, I mean, mm -hmm. Nebraska today, we did a show 
few months ago on Nebraska and their crimes against native peoples. That's what it's remembered mm -hmm. for and perhaps the heart of Trump country. But originally it was American. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, very much, well, the, the frontier, I guess. Um, and Paul Swan um, managed somehow to create an image and a reputation for himself as the most beautiful man in the world, as it says on your um, clip here. Um, he made his way to New York. He originally wanted to be a sculptor, but uh, he made some money uh, by painting portraits of this sultry Russian expatriate actor, actress, I should say, uh, Ala Nazimova, who was, you know, dark and exotic and probably had a throaty voice, um, and he adored her. And uh, with the money he made from painting, he set sail for Greece, where he wanted to go and um, learn to make great classical styles of sculpture, probably nude men. Um, but according to the, you know, the way he told it, he gets off the boat and all these Greeks are standing around in the port and they see him and they, they hail him as you know, the incarnation of Apollo, he's so beautiful. And so instead of becoming a sculptor, he decided to become a dancer. Um, he was kind of like a male Isadora Duncan in a sense, you know, the, during this period, the, the teens and the twenties, artists and dancers are looking back to the classical period and trying to revive, you know, the sort of free, beautiful, natural, classical style of dancing. Um, which they could only have gotten ideas about from looking at Greek vases, I guess. Um, and so he becomes a celebrity doing these classical dances, wearing this little leopard skin tunic, um, and women adored him. He was And a gay camp icon, at least according to, to, to Wikipedia, of course, the the title of your book, uh, the uh, lovely title, uh, Sarah, by the way, the emphatically okay. queer career of artist Perkins Handley uh, reveals, I guess, his sexuality. But these were dangerous times when you were gay. Mm -hmm. This was not today where it's almost an orthodoxy, certainly in cultural circles. Right. And that, that was interesting, too, you know, to sort of examine and think about how Perkins and his many friends who were gay or bi, um, you know, how they managed to live full and in some ways satisfying lives. Um, and I wouldn't even say they were living in the shadows. They were living in their own light. Right. I mean, people like Rose, as you say, Rose O'Neill, yeah. who he was close to, was pretty mm -hmm. well known. She was the, she, she, uh, she earned a fortune um, by creating Q-Pie, uh, mm -hmm. apparently the, the most widely known cartoon character until Mickey Mouse. And then uh, I think he uh, he was close also to Elsie DeWolf, who uh, was a sort of mm -hmm. aristocrat. Uh, so, as you say, um, the Forrest Gump of, of the counterculture at the turn of the 20th century, quite a character and quite a story. Yeah, um, and luckily he wrote prolifically letters, um, you know, thousands and thousands of letters um, in which he told stories, he told jokes, he loved dirty jokes. Uh, and, um, you know, there does sound like this Rene Mandel Corrin, doesn't he? This uh, <laughs> Jewish lady redneck who died, whose bio is 
gone viral online. Uh, there's a wonderful YouTube um, presentation of the book, and and here's a quote from it that I took from the from from um, uh, mm-hmm. from Perkins Hanley. My pictures are out of me, and I come from my early environment. Snakes and cemeteries have fascinated me, and it is from that early period where I came to see the accoutrement of death as beautiful. It's no surprise that this attracted you, uh, <laughs> given, given your fascination with Victoriana and death and cemeteries and haunted houses, Sarah. Yeah, it was like a perfect match, you know. He uh, may have been. Do you think he was created for you, or you were you created for him? <laughs> I, I think. I think I was created for him. Um, well, quite you know. a gift, Sarah. You're a very distinguished art historian. Wonderful that you've stumbled on him. We're going to take a break for a moment, Sarah. Okay. And then I want to come back and I want to talk in all seriousness about his art because he wasn't just a, a quirky character who knew a lot of other quirky people. He was also a gifted artist, maybe not of the highest rank, but of a, of a, of a significantly mm-hmm. high enough rank to merit being included in museums and have the attention of a distinguished art historian like uh, Sarah Byrne. So we'll be back in a second to talk about the actual art of, uh, of the artist Perkins Hanley. Keep, keep, uh, keep online, everyone, and we'll see you in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Sarah Burns, the author of the emphatically queer career of artist Perkins Harnley and his Bohemian Friends, probably the longest and most entertaining title of any book we've done this year. We talked about his friends, his environment, his countercultural tendencies uh, in the first part of the show. But uh, Perkins Hanley 
was also a distinguished artist in his own right. Sarah Burns is a very distinguished art historian, written many books on the history of American 19th and early 20th century art. And I want to talk, Sarah, about um, uh, ab- uh, about Perkins Hanley's art. You note in your introduction that he may not have been of the very highest rank. He may not have been comparable with Joseph Cornell, um, one of America's leading early surrealists. But you, you suggest that he was a very talented artist. What kind of art did um, Perkins Hanley do? Well, um, he did mostly interiors, uh, Victorian interiors for the most part in the early uh, decades of his career. Um, but he often um, had uh, figures in these interiors too. They were inhabited for the most part by very buxom, you know, curvaceous um, Victorian women. He called them his old whores or fat queens. Um, the one you're showing, the one you just showed, it's from Los Angeles, a lady. Yeah, this is a more modern one. I don't actually yeah. have one of those on the screen, but um, we can imagine those. I mean, imagine uh, in 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 in, uh-huh. in in what you're seeing there, uh, a half-clad Victorian plump lady. Well, you see, all her accessories are there, and right. so, you know, as so if she's just going to walk in and put on the hat and open up the parasol, you know, and saunter around in her buckled pumps and her lace stockings and and her tight hourglass corset. Um, and these, well, okay. So first of all, this is a great example, I think, of the kind of work he was doing in the 1930s. He pretty much taught himself. Um, he claimed that he learned to draw from the Sears catalog. Um, and if you look at the Sears catalogs from that period, you can see you know, the correspondences. They're very linear, very detailed, very elaborate. Um, and so his interiors are composites uh, drawn from various sources. Um, and, it's and hard I, stuff to do. I mean, again, whenever you look at art, it somehow looks inevitable and easy. But Technically, he must have been very gifted. I mean, you don't, yeah. I mean, he taught himself, I understand mm-hmm. that, but many people couldn't have, they could have spent thousands of years teaching themselves and never been able to, to, to make this kind of art. Yeah, and look how detailed it is. It's still, yeah, and given his life and the dissolute mm-hmm. nature of his life, the fact that he lived in this hotel, this down at heels yeah. hotel for 40 years mm-hmm. in filth and slime, his attention to detail is remarkable and the neatness of the work. How did he combine those two lives of the intensely meticulous artist and the rather dissolute <laughs> uh, Perkins Hanley and his actual life itself? Well, you know, he, he created spaces for himself in the midst of squalor and in the midst of you know these goings-on at the Culver Hotel. He decorated his room in a way that, you know, made it kind of a haven for him and as I write in the book, he always had a canary, um, which he usually named after, you know, sort of he-man figures like Jack Dempsey, the boxer. And um, so his 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 art, um, he, he spent hours, days, and even weeks on these paintings, you know, maybe a square inch a day, as he reported later on. Um, Did he sell them or were they just... I mean, was there a market for this sort of stuff? Not really. Um, you know, he worked for the Index of American Design, which was a, a, a branch of the WPA, the Works Project Administration, which supported artists by giving them jobs to do. The Index of American Design 
was the reason for um, a great many of his better paintings, I think. Um, the mission of the index was to um, create a record of American design, right. especially, you know, sort of non-industrial production like Shaker. Was he, was he competing in a way? Here we have a, this is a, an image of him, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A photo of him. He's hard to find. Um, did he think of himself as competing with photography or was he embellishing photography? Not was at all. photography a rival? No, I don't think so. Um, I think he was he was doing his own thing. Um, and and the other thing about his Victorian rooms that that I think is is telling and you know very indicative of his his character, his nature, his artistic personality, is that if I think of them as rooms in drag, uh, he was a drag queen, um, and he loved to dress up, you know, just like the whores in his paintings with plumed hats and you know a corset and a wig of course and lots of makeup um and so i think of these rooms not simply as reproductions of victorian interiors that he did for this uh, index of american design but places where at least in imagination he could be um you know, rooms and drag um queer space of a sort i suppose you might say that's kind of a, a term that's been current in yeah. anything but um a christmas love story mm -hmm. <laughs> an alternative on christmas eve sarah uh, and then what about this more mo uh, modern one um yeah from los angeles is this from the, the when did he die 1986 and this okay, is and well, so, so this image for people watching is a sort of almost it's like a, a modernized victorian interior with huh. half-dressed women on the walls Oh, I love the way you describe it. Yeah, modernized Victorian interior, cluttered, excessive, um, you know, kind of a, there's a sexiness about it, I suppose. Um, these, this was done in 1947, and Perkins was back in Los Angeles after, well, Los Angeles in the 20s, New York, Mexico, New York, and then Los Angeles again. He, he had an exhibition of his Victorian interiors on the mezzanine level of the Metropolitan Art Museum in New York. And who should come to see the show on the next to the last day, but Albert Lewin, the Hollywood director, who was just then beginning to plan the production of the picture of Dorian Gray. Mm. And he took one look at these paintings and said, oh, this man, you know, this artist, he's just the kind of person I need to advise me about the sets and the design of the movie. So. Um, he offered Perkins a train ticket and a job at MGM. And um, so that's how Perkins landed back in Los Angeles. And Albert Lewin loved Perkins' art, and he thought that it would be an important, um, important to commission him to do more interiors, uh, which would be also given to the uh, National Gallery of Art with the Index of American Design Paintings now all are stored. So Perkins just set to work. He did 25 more complicated interiors. Um, and they weren't all Victorian, some of them were, but this one that you showed, the cocktail lounge in Los Angeles, is an example of you know how he you know kind of transposed his aesthetic of Victorian excess and exuberance and you know some Yeah, I don't think um Queen Victoria would be amused by that. Uh, mm -hmm. she was <laughs> really amused, and she certainly wouldn't be amused by this 
updated oh Victoriana of half naked women and some you fully find it terribly vulgar. Yeah, um. yeah. She would um <laughs> and it was funny, I was thinking of Queen Victoria. Um uh Joan Didion died today, and the photo of Joan Didion, the obituary on the FT, she looks a lot like um Queen Victoria. She looks as oh. miserable as her. I wonder uh, <laughs> <laughs> if we need more Perkins Harnley in the pantheons of American culture. It's also worth noting, um, Sarah, you'd mentioned the Work Progress Administration, the WPA, um, and the Federal Art Project. This guy was kept alive, and his art was essentially financed by the state in the 1930s, especially during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. It speaks of the value of federally financed art, doesn't it, his career? Absolutely. Um, and I think it's a real pity that, you know, that didn't continue in, in some fashion. You know, the American... Yeah, can you imagine uh, how offensive the Trump people would find him? Oh, yeah. God, I'd love to see their face. <laughs> <laughs> Are there... Um, uh, 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 he's, he's unfortunately no longer around. As I said, you're an art historian, so you're a, a chronologist of traditions... Does he have successors? Are there people around today, contemporary artists, who have taken some of his work, modernized it, developed it in some way? Or is he just unique? He stands alone in the tradition of American art. Well, he he is unique. I, I, I don't think anyone has directly tried to follow him or create a path, you know, inspired by Perkins. Um, and he he's very little known except to you know, this small circle of people who remember him from around 1980 when, you know, improbably <laughs> he runs into Bill Paxton, the actor, and they become fast friends. And, you know, Perkins takes him to Forest Lawn Cemetery and they enjoy graveyards together. Um, but he had his last hurrah, you know, at the attack gallery in Los Angeles. And, and then he fades from view. You know, the work just isn't known. Um, his work. Without, um, I mean, the book, as I said, is is um, is 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 a is a wonderful, I think, tribute to this man. It's clearly a labor of love. Uh, the emphatically queer career uh, of artist Perkins Hanley and his Bohemian friends. Um, I hope um, I hope you do him some justice. You're obviously. You wrote the book in part to remind people of his work and his tradition and his unique life. Especially, yeah, and this was this was a thought I had going into this project early on, before I focused on Perkins. I wanted to write about artists whose lives were at least as interesting as their work, if not. Yeah, more. And his life was probably what, as as you say, at least as interesting, perhaps even if not more, more interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Sarah, it's real uh, lovely to have you uh, on Christmas Eve, uh, an appropriate non-love story for Christmas Eve. As I said, your book is just out uh, for art lovers and for people interested in alternative narratives of American history and cultural history. This is the central reading, the emphatically queer career of artist Perkins Hanley and his Bohemian friends. I've been enjoying it all morning. Very interesting. I knew none of this. What else should people be reading, Sarah, to... um, as alternatives to uh, traditional love story <laughs> schmaltz on Christmas Eve? Well, one of my favorite books of recent publication, which which kind of 
you know, inspired me, I think, to try to tell this story in an interesting way is um, Jamie Jameson, The Glamour of Strangeness, which is about... Um, That's it. I like the title of that, Glamour uh, of Strangeness. Artists in the Last Age of the Exotic. And um, you know, he writes about all these characters, most of whom I didn't know anything about. Um, he writes about uh, Maya Deren, the American artist, uh, filmmaker, who was beautiful and wild and um, went to Haiti to uh, try to tap so in. A sort of equality, a little bit of the Paul Swan in him. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and it's a it's a wonderful book because, like my book, I suppose, or at least I, as I hoped my book would be, it, it acquaints you with these other lives, you know. Yet Can you remind us of the book again and the author? Um, Jamie James, The Glamour of Strangeness. Whoopsie Jamie pretty. James, The Glamour of Strangeness. We need to read that. Well, Sarah, I hope you have a very alternative Christmas. <laughs> uh, don't do anything too naughty uh, in Seattle, but uh, I know you won't fall into the, um, the traditional um, schmaltzy Christmas nonsense that too many people get sucked into. Your new book... Um, the emphatically queer career of artist Perkins Hanley and his Bohemian friends offers an alternative narrative, American history and culture. Wonderful read. Congratulations, Sarah. Keep well. Thank keep you writing so much. and keep, uh, keep throwing your cultural bombs. We need people like you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, wonderful to have be on the show.